when it comes to trauma, the reason why you'll remember everything is because it's important to gather as much information during a painful related moment as possible in order to prevent potential future situations like that. So, Kia ora whanau. Welcome to the Pocket Coach Podcast. I'm your host, Kieran Headley, and we are in Auckland, New Zealand. All right. Now, I <laughs> my last podcast I filmed was in Paris, and the um, I then went back to Italy. I then went to Kenya, and now I'm in New Zealand. So I've been in a few different places since we uh, last chatted here. But we're going to talk about why I'm in New Zealand, and I'm in New Zealand because I had a car crash. <laughs> in Kenya, <laughs> which is why I'm not still in Kenya, which is why I never got to do a podcast episode with you in Kenya. So this episode is actually related to that car crash, or I'd say van crash rather. And um, we're going to talk about how to process trauma and the things that I'm doing in order to process said trauma that occurred from said car crash. Uh, we'll also go ahead and talk about EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which is a fantastic trauma processing tool uh, that was invented in the 1980s and has really surfaced in the psychology field um, of modern day science. Uh, something we'll go into depth of in terms of not just how to use it, but also the mechanisms behind it neurologically in the next episode. However, this episode is not that. This episode is how do I process trauma? Because that's not the way I use personally, um, even though it's fantastic. I've used this method many times over um, successfully, um, and it's what I use, have been using uh, for said car crash. It's very successfully too. So let's just go to that, right? Now, how the heck did I end up in Kenya first, all right? Um, I went over to Kenya because I wanted to go run with some Kenyans. Seriously, <laughs> that's actually why I went over. Um, you know, I'm into my running. It's, I'm super passionate about it, even though I'm an amateur runner. I've only been running for like three years. And um, I thought, well, I'd always wanted to go run with the best. And, you know, I was looking at booking in a, um, a camp in Kenya, an E10 specifically, which is 2,300 meters of alt at altitude, which is, I think, 700 uh, 7,000, sorry, 400 and something feet, a little bit above 7,400 feet um, of altitude, right? So that's, that's right up there. Um, it took me about two weeks to stop gasping randomly for just sitting down. <laughs> so I'd be sitting down and I'd randomly go, <gasps> like not as intensely or drastically as that. I did that because for people that are just listening to audio so they can grasp <laughs> the dramatics. Um, but I'd gasp randomly because the air is, of course, much thinner. There's less oxygen available, which um, I believe from what I learned from uh, a well-renowned sports scientist who I became friends with over there. Uh, he was telling me about the increase in hemoglobin production, which inherently, uh, as a consequence, improves, I believe, your red blood cell count or something like that. I, I don't know exactly how it works, but um, I'm, I'm more into the neurology side of things than the sports science and exercise science type like side of things. So, you know, I'm, I'm very basic when it comes to that. But anyway, it just improves your ability to oxygenize your muscles and improve your overall endurance uh, when it comes to 
doing your running, which is why there's so many famous runners that train at altitude. But, you know, that reason aside, I, um, you know, I also wanted to go train with Zane and um, Jake Robertson, who have now become great friends of mine. Uh, I had the opportunity of moving into a guest house that Zane was hosting, which by the way, if you do go to Kenya, specifically if you go to E10, which is by the way, in order to get there, you fly to Nairobi, then you do a one hour flight via Jumbo Jet, which is their uh, domestic airline. Um, <laughs> yeah, anyway, um, that was always an interesting ride. It's a one hour flight to Alderet, and then you take about a 45 minute drive from Alderet to E10. Now, um, we'll get to as to why I'm explaining this in a moment, but uh, moved into Zane's guest house, did lots of runs with him, uh, got to know Jake, and, you know, became good mates with those guys. And they're absolute legends. If you're interested, they're our top in the New Zealand distance running world, uh, literally the top of our country. Uh, Zane specifically has been in two Olympics, and Jake's um, uh, got some national records along with um, uh, had some national records along with Zane. So now these two legends, uh, you know, I, I was aspired by, inspired by, and um, if you hear any noise on the uh, audio, you'll just, just so you know, it's Molly, our dog. <laughs> She's a bit excited at currently 9.34 p.m., um, but you'll be able to see it in the video if you're watching the YouTube now, how it works is on Saturdays, you'd normally go for long runs. So long runs are usually um, these big runs of 25 to 40 kilometers, roughly, right? Um, and miles, I'll just convert that for you briefly, because this is sort of what they do every weekend on a Saturday. Normally, um, it'll be roughly 15 miles to about 25 miles. So between 15 and 25 miles is sort of what they do most Saturdays. And in order to facilitate this run, because you'd go on random roads through Kenya and, you know, you wouldn't exactly do random circuits and pick up fluids along the way. And because it's a long way, um, would need support as well along the way. And also because we run in groups and never individual, very rarely they run individually. I'd run with a group. I'd get way more tired than they would. Obviously I'm not an Olympian and they are. <laughs> so what would happen is, uh, would have a van or what they call a matatu that would follow us. Okay, now we're getting to the story in a moment in terms of what happened and the trauma and processing. Now, we had a driver called Lenny who facilitated this particular long run uh, that Zane did and I did alongside, I think it was like another 30 individuals. Um, a couple of them were Olympians as well. Um, some of them, one of them, I believe, won Paris Marathon. Um, another came second just behind Elliot Kipchoge when he set the world record most recently. Um, so, you know, there was a few top tier guys, right? Now, we're, uh, you know, doing our thing, running an amazing route. I only last about, you know, nine and a half kilometers accumulated or 10 kilometers accumulated um, because I got too tired, jumped in the van, then got out and then kept going. So the van's there to support people like me <laughs> um, who can't keep up with the Olympians, um, you know. So it's also there as well to facilitate them when they get thirsty or when they need a runner's gel, you know, so it's a little food gel they take while they're running and that's why the van's there so I'll, I'll drive a Lenny I'm just you know hanging with them having good chats and just overall and enjoying the um the whole process now 
we end up um, like going home and um, no, we actually ended up going to this cross country event. So we stayed awake, you know, uh, it was a really cool cross country event going on um, in Alderette. Uh, and then we went home and then we got invited by Paul Chalima, who's also an American Olympian, um, to his club, which is also an Alderette. Um, it's called Alberto's, named after his late brother. And Zane and I, we're, um, we're having a little bit of tequila. We're like, cool, let's uh, go to this Alberto's. It'll be amazing. So have some tequila back at um, Zane's place. And uh, we call up uh, Kandi, who is a guy that runs this transportation business that Lenny is a part of, who was our driver in the morning. And he gives us Lenny again. We're like, hold on. Lenny would have been awake at about 3.30 in the morning to cater for our long run because that's sort of usually the time that you'd wake up to go to the, these long runs in the morning on Saturday. Right, so there's no Friday night party. <laughs> and uh, they, he kind of said, oh, it's okay. Lenny's fine. So I'm like, okay. Um, you know, we're, we're like, okay, we're good. So we get Lenny to pick us up and he takes us to Alberto's and we hang out with Paul and um, you know, Zane's there and I'm there and, you know, I meet some a few other amazing people and runners and, you know, that's sort of the life I've been living for about, it was about up to three weeks at this point. And Lenny's there with us because, you know, he's accompanying us. Um, just, you know, we have a few drinks. Uh, he just, he doesn't drink any alcohol. That was 100% certain. Um, but he did drink two Red Bulls, you know, to keep himself awake. And then at three o'clock, it was time to go home. We're tired. So, and by the way, if you ever do go to Kenya, you must go to a nightclub. It is the most interesting thing. Um, <laughs> uh, you're in for a treat. Um, it's just a very different culture, of course. So as you can imagine, the nightlife is very different too. But I want to go into detail. It's, this isn't the place for that. <laughs> now, we get into the van. Uh, Lenny's driving us home and Zane and I are just chatting. I'm sort of falling asleep and I'm like bro I'm falling asleep um he falls asleep too so we're both asleep and then the next thing I know I wake up hitting my head on the rail in front of me that's supporting the van structure or the matatu structure um and the van starts tilting to the left side I'm and in my mind I'm not thinking anything I'm just wondering what's going on in a very slow way everything was slow motion and then all of a sudden we slide across on the left side of the van um, or the vans on the left side. We don't have seatbelts either because vans or matatus in Kenya don't have seatbelts. And we're sliding for a while and we come to a stop. Um, I look down. Um, we're on the left side of the car because we'd fallen off course of our, of our seats. The van's on its left side and we're sitting or I'm sitting on the or lying rather first and then I get up to a sitting position on the left window um, one row behind the driver's seat there's blood all on the window um, I'm bleeding out of my head um, quite a lot I'm not realizing this at the time but I could feel it a little bit um, and I see Zane curled up on the window sort of under me um, because he had fallen on top of me and then behind me because he was on my right as I was sitting on the left and he was asleep. He'd been knocked out. He came to after a few seconds, was wondering what the hell happened in complete shock. Bro, what happened? What happened, man? Um, and just complete distraught. And um, he's bleeding a lot too. Um, so, you know, I'm there 
um, and a little bit of shock. So I'm like, holy crap, we've just obviously been in a crash. Okay. Um, so Lenny gets out first, who was our driver. Luke, who was our friend, our Kenyan friend behind us, he gets out um, and he, they climb out the right side passenger window because that's the only place to get out from here because obviously we're on our side. And uh, then Zane, I help Zane get out and then I get out. And then um, I wrap Zane's head with um, my shirt and then I had an undershirt. So I wrapped my head with that um, just to slow the bleeding because there's a lot of blood going on. And uh, Zane lies down. I sit down by him to support his head so his head's not parallel or, sorry, um, on the same level, rather, as his heart. Because, of course, you know, it's not the ideal situation if, um, you know, you're bleeding out a lot of your head. And um, Lenny, who was our driver, came and lay down next to us. And he's gasping for air. I'm like, oh, my God. I think Lenny's going to die. And it was a very scary moment for me to observe and witness all of this because everything is so clear to me. I know exactly what happened at every second so clearly, which is resembling, which is resembling by the way, of trauma. Um, and then, you know, we get rushed to the hospital by this van who, got, who came and picked us up. Um, and the driver is freaking out and asking Lenny to stay awake because he's falling asleep in the, um, in the front seat. Um, with all this blood coming out, his face is covered in cuts from the his face smashing into the windscreen in the front from the impact. And um, it turned out, by the way, that Lenny had fallen asleep at the driver's seat and he'd gone off the highway and into the ditch. And then um, because we didn't make the jump over the ditch completely, because um, the ditch is quite big, uh, we then fell onto our left side and then slid across the ground of the ditch. I remember that moment of me getting out of the van and me taking an absolute moment, even though I was bleeding out of my face, <laughs> um, just literally thanking the universe for me being alive. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, oh my God, thank you. Thank you. Thank I just was so grateful in that moment. It was a weirdest situation considering I was covered in blood. <laughs> Here I was you know, being so thankful for life. It was the most incredible thing. We get rushed to the hospital. Um, we think Lenny's going to die. Um, Zane's there wondering what's happened 60 times over. You know, so I'm repeating it to him, making sure he's all good. So I'm, you know, making sure everyone's doing okay. Somehow I'm getting around. Um, and uh, yeah, after about seven or eight hours at the hospital, which is basically a terrible hospital, it's just a, like a primary school looking place where there's classrooms but each classroom because you've got to go outside to go to the next classroom um each classroom is like a room at a hospital if you can imagine that right so that's sort of what it's like and all, everything outside is not by the way floor it's dirt right so you, this is the kind of state we're in um and there were as well because it was at night time this was 3 30 a.m when the crash happened you know again that's very vivid for me uh there were not uh, um very many professionals at the um, hospital at the E10 hospital, which is a small village hospital, right? And there were a lot of university students as well, you know, trying to support us. So it was really interesting being in an environment like that when, you know, there was a couple of critical guys there um, who needed a absolute special attention. And, you know, we've only got um, some people that don't really know completely what they're doing and, you know, are constantly asking each other, like, you know, in their um, tongue, what's going on? Um, so 
pretty scary situation. Um, thankfully, Lenny survived. Um, and of course, Zane survived as well. Um, he's doing okay now. He's, um, he's had the okay from the neurologist after his internal brain bleed um, that he doesn't, he's going to be okay. And same with Lenny. He's had the okay as well by the sounds of it from what I know. So that's very thankful. Um, it turns out that I had a bit of a concussion because my nose started bleeding. Um, and that's only happened really once before where it's happened continuously um, because I knocked my head. I had a con that was the third concussion I ever had. It was a snowboard accident and um, I had blood coming out of my nose quite profusely. This was less profuse. So therefore, I would assume it was, it was not as bad of a concussion. Also, I my memory was very intact and... Uh, I was still mentally, cognitively, decently sharp. I'm not 100% sharp yet, which is why I take my time explaining the story because I'll lose myself if I go too quickly. Um, but uh, yeah, everyone ended up being okay. It turned out that I've got a partial tendon tear on my leg. What ended up happening is adrenaline was pumping through my body and I somehow was walking around and helping everyone. And then the moment that I sat down, uh, my knee stopped working. It was the weirdest thing. I sat down and the adrenaline, my adrenaline has stopped, of course, because I was finally calm. Well, I was calm really the whole time, surprisingly, but I was finally rested, I should say. Um, and yeah, my knee just stopped working because <laughs> I was no longer needing it. It was so interesting like that, right? As soon as adrenaline stops, the injury, um, you know, becomes prominent. I also had a second moment, which was beautiful, which was when the sun was rising, I had to get out of the room because this was like, you know, three hours after the crash happened and all this chaos was going on. Like, I need to get out of here. I need to do something positive. Um, so I went out and saw the sunrise and I had some tears coming out of my eyes because I'm like, oh my God, I'm alive. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Right. It was a beautiful moment. Um, realized that I'd started taking life for granted again and many things for granted again um, that I used to be a little bit more connected to um, since I've had two other near-death experiences. <laughs> so I, uh, you know, had my situations for sure. Um, now, let's, um, you know, um, basically what happened is the driver had fallen asleep and he um, had leant to his right side. In Kenya, you drive on your left side, on the left side of the road and in the right side of the car. Okay, so you're a right-hand drive. And he had fallen asleep, fell and leant to the right side. So the steering wheel had followed and then he'd gone off. Um, now, there were many ways we could have died. We could have died if there was oncoming traffic, which he wasn't at the time, luckily. Uh, we, would have, we could have very well died if we'd hit a lamp post, which is in the ditches, going, uh, planted along the side of the road too. But we didn't. So that would have come, brought us to a much more sudden stop. And the head knock that I would have gotten would, could have killed me. Instead, it just gave me a little bit of a, um, a brain bleed and um, you know, a few issues. Same as Zane, right? Um, we could have gone off the left side, which would have sent us into a roll instead of just a sli slide on the left side. If we had landed a certain different way in the ditch that we did, we would have rolled. So there were various ways that, you know, if I had hit my head slightly differently, um, and if I had maybe even hit the, my temple um, on, the, on my side when we'd fallen, right? These are all ways that it could have killed me. And I, it, I didn't die. This, these things didn't happen. So for all these reasons, I was incredibly, and still am, incredibly thankful, truly thankful for every breath that I'm taking right now, for every word that I'm saying right now, for every second that's passing by and every tick of that clock to my right side. Every single thing 
I'm incredibly grateful for. Now, that's not why I'm doing this podcast, but I did want to share that because it's always an important reminder. Every heartbeat, every second, every breath, these are all things to truly be grateful for. Because what if I don't get it tomorrow? You know, I didn't wake up that morning thinking that I was going to be in a car crash. I didn't get into that car and fall asleep behind the driver um, thinking that I was going to wake up with the van tilt turning to its left side, right? Like these things I didn't imagine at all and they happen. These things can happen at any moment. And it's so important to not take these moments for granted, even the unpleasant moments. But that's for another time. This time, instead, I want to talk about how am I processing this trauma? I'm going to share three steps that I take, have taken many times to successfully process my trauma. I have used with multiple clients to help them process their trauma. And I have used to process this trauma because it was traumatic. There was a lot of blood. There was a near-death um, experience. Um, and also as well, I almost witnessed someone's death. Um, so, you know, and I also saw my friend in a lot of pain. It was definitely traumatic. Now... The first thing that I do, now bear in mind that this practice is specific for someone that is well equipped to face trauma and to do work on trauma. If you go ahead and do a practice like this and you're not ready, you, you, um, you can probably accumulate more trauma from trying to process the trauma. That is not ideal. First step, so step zero rather, I should say, is first build a a, a, an intermediate level meditation practice. When I say intermediate, I mean you can meditate on your own in stillness, in silence for a minimum of 20 minutes without needing to move or listen to guidance or um, to, to uh, open your eyes or anything. The second thing um, you want to develop before you can do this is an ability to uh, sit with difficult thoughts or emotions um, during this 20-minute practice without needing to resist or resolve or figure out, just simply being able to be with these challenging thoughts and emotions. If you can do this, that's a prerequisite, right? My prerequisite, anyway. Uh, then you may go ahead and do this kind of um, practice. Do a basic form of this practice first before you do the true form. I'm going to explain what the true form and the basic form is. The true form is actually allowing a simulation in your brain to play out of the traumatic moment. So literally I'm playing out the entire thing time after time until what happens, I become more desensitized by it. The amygdala, which is heightened in activity when I'm processing the trauma, um, which is our threat detection center in the brain, becomes de I'm sorry, um, down-regulated, which means there's less activity of the amygdala because I become desensitized to the processing of this, which decreases adrenaline secretion, which decreases cortisol production. So these are flow-on effects of amygdala activity or threat detection activity. If I can decrease the threat detection activity, I also decrease the stress, fight, or flight states um, or state that occurs in my body and brain as a consequence of that as well. So I therefore am able to experience more calmness in my body and brain 
as a consequence because now every time the memory gets triggered from something or something that resembles that experience occurs and that would normally trigger those groups of neurons that have been formed based on the memory of that, then I'm not going to be as triggered. My heart's not going to race as fast and I'm going to be able to maintain a calmer and clearer state. So that's why we process um, trauma by actually running a simulation of the traumatic moment. And I do so by using a calming breath or at least a physiologically calming state. In other words, I just allow my body to remain relaxed while I do that rather than tensing up, right? And after I've processed it enough times, I'll become more desensitized to it. So this is the first step, by the way. This isn't the final step. Um, now you can do a, a smaller minimized version of this where instead of just going straight to your scariest trauma, you actually use a memory that's based on embarrassment or a memory that's based on something that you're a little bit afraid of. Okay, so it might have been something that you did when you were a kid and, you know, maybe made you a little bit afraid to go and speak to your crush or it made you um, a little bit scared of relationships or something along those lines, right? It made you maybe fearful of um, talking about money um, with people. Like, like these are just smaller examples, okay, that you can utilize. And if you practice processing this kind of quote-unquote trauma first before going to something more intense, you'll be able to build up the confidence and the capability to process something larger. That's my suggestion. When I first started practicing this kind of practice, it would take me quite literally an hour and a half to two hours of sitting still, focusing on this kind of thing and processing it consistently over the space of an hour and a half to two hours. Now it only takes me a few minutes, but it's because I've done this kind of thing so many times to the point where I'm able to downregulate amygdala activity and come to a calmer state very quickly in a small space of time, right? The second thing I do is I process the thing that the trauma has led me to fear, which is being a passenger in a car. So now I'll, then I'll start processing and, simu and simulating in my mind, right? And this will be a second practice that I can either do if I can do it quickly, the first practice, then I can do this straight after, or I might do this day after day. So I might do like three or four days of processing step one, and then three or four days of processing step two. And I'll just process myself as a passenger in a vehicle. And I do that many times until once again, I become desensitized. Step three is to actually incrementally introduce the fear physically. So in, in reality. So in other words, I will then be a passenger in a car, but I'll be a passenger in a car of a slow driving vehicle. And then eventually I can work my way up to being a passenger in a car on a highway, right? So these are, and then of course, maybe one day I can be a passenger in a car in Kenya again, right? But this time only in a vehicle with seatbelts because no vans as they do not have seatbelts. Um, so these are examples, or oh, sorry, the, these are, sorry, steps that I take that, and also my clients take that are very practical and very successful when done with the proper guidance and pros, protocol and process with the right basis first, so important in order to be able to process trauma. So these are the steps that I take. Obviously, I've very much dumbed them down. I haven't gone into huge detail because that would take literally well over an hour to explain the whole thing in detail. Um, and also as well, there's a lot of mechanistic um, basis behind what's going on neurologically 
that we could get into, but I'd rather actually just be more practical with you. Um, so that was the traumatic moment that happened to me. And that's why I'm back in New Zealand because I had to come back to get surgery for money, which apparently I might not even need surgery now, but here we are. <laughs> I'm slowly rehabbing. Um, it's been almost three weeks since the accident and I'm feeling really good. I'm not as sharp yet. I'm not energized yet because I'm still recovering and I'm walking, but I'm definitely far from running, um, but we'll get there. Um, I'll continue being um, optimistic with my rehab. But honestly, I've been really well, um, surprising, actually, no, not surprisingly because of the work that I've done. It hasn't affected me negatively. I've been really optimistic through the whole process um, and I have been able to be very supportive to my friends who have been really suffering um, from the trauma that happened with the crash. Um, but it's always a very uh, interesting breakdown. Now, one more um, piece of information that's interesting is when it comes to trauma, the reason why you'll remember everything is because it's important to gather as much information during a painful related moment as possible in order to prevent potential future situations like that. So my brain will respond as in a reactionary way anytime anything that, that resembles that situation occurs. So for, for me, it'll be the sight of blood, the smell of fumes, right? Being a passenger in a car, right? These things would... In the, have previously, after the first few days, triggered that trauma. But now that no longer is the case because I've processed it very successfully, right? So the other thing that's clear is all the events that lead up to the traumatic moment are ingrained in the memory as well. And the brain does that in order to recognize the preemptive scenarios that would normally lead to the trauma, right? So the brain will go, oh, I was at a bar before. Oh, I got, um, I got, um, we hired a van, right? These, all these little steps are preemptive to the situation and therefore the brain records these in order to avoid them in the future, right? So that's why it records all this information. So very interesting thing about trauma, but, um, you know, there's so much to it and it's, you know, um, there's so many conversations that can be had about it. Anyway, that's the end of this. We went on long enough. Um, love you guys. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for the support. And I hope this has been informative and helpful in some shape or form to y'all. Um, but yeah, more to come and MDR in the next episode. If you found this helpful, please go ahead and share it. Um, you know, this helps us grow. It increases my reason to continue to do this kind of thing. Um, and uh, if you want to, you know, stay tuned for that MDR episode, then do give us a good old subscribe because, um, and whatever platform you're watching or listening this to this on, because then you'll be alerted as soon as it's out. I'll see you next time. Laters.